Today, page 37 in your notebooks, and on the three pages prior, pages 34 to 36, there are recommended resources for this section of this course. And those, of those recommended resources, I contacted the folks that serve in our resource center before we started the series and told them some of the uh, books that are most highly recommended, and they have purchased those. So we have a number of those that are listed on pages 34 to 36 in our resource center, which is out this back door and just across the hallway. So you might uh, step in there uh, after today or, or next week uh, during our refreshment time and uh, see what they have there. As I say, some of those are listed on the recommended resources, and we have them for you for your convenience in the resource center. Now, we're on page 37, and... Today we are going to begin a several-week look at the different Christian denominations, where they came from, and what their distinctive teachings are. Now, if you've been with us for the prior four weeks of this series, you know that we started at the beginning of these notes and looked at the religion of Islam. We've spent the entire first four weeks looking at, at Islam. If you were not able to be here for that, you have those notes, but we also have the recordings for these at our website. All of our services are recorded, and you can go to cbctrenton.com, cbctrenton.com, and then we have a media tab there, and you can listen to those past, uh, past messages. But we have some other world religions besides Islam in the pages preceding uh, the one I've asked you to turn to uh, on Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and Judaism. But I have skipped those for now, and the reason that I've done that is because In talking to folks, it is clear to me that the things that folks are most interested in are, one, Islam, for uh, probably obvious reasons, and uh, also then the Christian denominations, and what's the difference between a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, a Methodist, and so on. And so we are skipping to that, and we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at that, and that's why I've asked you to turn to page 37. At the top of page 37... I say the year 1517 was pivotal in the history of denominations. On October 31st, so just two days ago, Halloween, October 31st, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic professor at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, posted 95 theses, that is grievances, about which he invited debate. Now, what was the reason that he did that? The occasioning event for that action was the visit of an indulgence salesman to Wittenberg, Johann Tetzel. Luther was angered by what he saw as an extreme abuse of spiritual authority in Tetzel's trade. So let me stop there and and clarify what I've said in those first few sentences. That Martin Luther is a Roman Catholic and a Roman Catholic professor at the university in Wittenberg. But he has been thinking for quite a while about uh, where he believes the church has veered from biblical teaching. And then he has this event where this indulgence salesman, Tetzel, comes to town and is selling these things called indulgences. So I'd like to clarify what that is. We have a footnote for you uh, in the fourth line of that paragraph next to the word indulgence. Footnote 47, down at the bottom of page 37, says an indulgence is a remission before God, and this is, you see, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 
An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. An indulgence is obtained through the church, who, by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Christ Jesus, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints. The treasury of the church is of infinite value and can never be exhausted. This treasury includes, in addition to the infinite merit of Christ, the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints. Through indulgences, the faithful can obtain remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls in purgatory. Now, that's a mouthful, and in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at purgatory and the treasury of, of the church. But let me, for now, just briefly explain as quickly as, as I can. In Roman Catholicism, the good works that all Roman Catholics do are treasured, they are stored in this thing called the treasury of the church. And people can make withdrawals, in effect, from the treasury of the church on their behalf and on, the, on behalf of others. The currency of these withdrawals, the means of getting some of the good works of other people applied to you, is through this thing called an indulgence. Uh, an indulgence is Latin for indulgentia, and it means a permit, a permit. And it was a piece of paper that you would get, an indulgence, and it would tell you that you have had a certain number of years knocked off of, of purgatory. Now, one of the ways that these were obtained at the time of Luther was by paying for them. And that's why then, in that first paragraph, we talk about an indulgence salesman. Tetzel was going around, in effect, hawking these permits, these pieces of paper that reduced time in purgatory that were, with, in effect, withdrawals from this treasury of, of the church. The church controls it. The church determines who gets them, what you have to do to get them, and how much you obtain out of it for a particular in, indulgence. Tetzel is selling these. Tetzel was extremely effective at selling them. He was the best in Europe. Tetzel had a little jingle. When he would go to a town and sell indulgences, he would say, When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So he had this little jingle, and he would do these, the, his sales thing, and then he would sell these. And Luther, who was already concerned and had been concerned about abuses and divergences from biblical teaching present in the church, saw this now in his own town in Wittenberg. And he's incited to action. He's angered. And that anger then causes him to compose the 95 grievances, the 95 theses. And he nails them to the church door in Wittenberg. Now, sometimes we, if you're familiar with that story, and many of you are, if you're familiar with that, you think that 
that Luther did this in as an act of defiance by putting it at the church door. That's not actually the case because the church door, the church was the center place of cities in Europe. And the door of the church was a place where notices would get posted lots of times. So it's kind of the central place. This is where you put notices. So him nailing them on the church door wasn't in defiance of the church, although he was very, very concerned about abuses, but that was just a place where you put notices. And he puts this notice out saying, I'm inviting debate over these 95 things. Most of the 95 had to do with the abuses of indulgences, but as we're going to see, the indulgence system and the power of the church to dispense these in order for people to, to uh, go to heaven and determine when they go to heaven was part and parcel of the abuses that had occurred over centuries. So it opened a huge debate and sparked what we will see in a bit is called the Protestant Reformation. So continuing on, middle of that first paragraph. However, it would soon become clear that the underlying issues that gave rise to Tetzel's abuse were deep and far-reaching. The indulgence system was part and parcel of a system of religion that Luther believed had exceeded its authority and created requirements for eternal life that were contrary to the biblical gospel. The twin issues of authority and the gospel had caused conflict between the Roman Catholic Church and dissenters long before the time of Luther. It's necessary to understand these conflicts in order to appreciate the issues involved in the Protestant Reformation begun by Luther. Now, when we say Protestant Reformation, if, you know, sometimes you go to the hospital and they want to know what's your religion so they know who to call, what kind of minister should we call in case something goes wrong. And sometimes on the, on the form it'll say Protestant or Catholic. So what is that, Protestant? Well, its, it's root word is protest. And the Protestant Reformation was a protest, and those who participated were Protestants. They were protesting things that they saw within, within the church. And then the other word, Protestant then, protesting these abuses, with that was the desire for reformation, to reform the church. Luther did not... Uh, at first, desire to create a new church, to leave the church. His desire was to protest and reform. But since that was not possible for reasons that we will see, then Luther ended up being excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. He began then on his own and then others, the Protestant reformers, uh, with him. And as a result of this, many of the denominations we see today came out of that. We'll see that in the weeks to come. So the Protestant Reformation is a protest against the abuses of, of the church and a desire to reform those abuses. Now I say in that last sentence in the second paragraph, therefore we will begin by looking at the root of the division before looking at the fruit of that division. Root before fruit. So what is the root? Go back just a little bit in, in history to see where the agitation began and, and why, but to see what the issues uh, were and, uh, and what all is at stake. And so that's what I have in the middle of page 37, the ultimate issues of authority and the nature of the gospel. Authority and the nature of the gospel. The Reformers taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, on the authority of Scripture alone. And the Latin word for alone is sola. 
The solas of the Reformation are sola fide, that is faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, and sola scriptura, scripture alone. So you have these, you have these solas, the, and, and that idea of sola uh, in Latin is very important to the Reformation. In fact, uh, I believe it is not too much to say that the Protestant Reformation occurred really over one word, and that is the word alone. And I say that to you uh, so that you'll understand what was at stake, but also to help you discern some things that are happening in our day. It's been a little over 20 years now, but in 1992, a group of evangelicals, so those are, these are Protestants and Protestants who believe the, the biblical gospel, but were seeking a reproachment with, with Rome. They were seeking to uh, see if the, if the division created after the Reformation couldn't be repaired. And they created a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. That's the name of the document, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And in that document, uh, they, they say this, We affirm together that salvation is by faith, through grace, because of Christ. We affirm together that salvation is by grace, through faith, because of Christ. Now, is anything missing there? You see, the word alone is missing. And the word alone is absolutely pivotal. Because Roman Catholicism has never denied that salvation involves faith, that it involves grace, that it certainly involves Christ. The question is not, are faith and grace and Christ involved? The question is, is salvation achieved by those means alone? Or are other things to be added to that? And as we will see, we will see what those other things are, namely good works, in particular the works of, of the sacraments of, of the church. So the Reformers taught the, the solas of faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. As evidence, second paragraph there, that the issues that led to the Protestant Reformation were extremely significant, Witness the reaction to the Reformers' teaching from the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent. Now, before you start reading the stuff in italics there, um, let me just tell you about the, something about the Council of Trent. Notice the year there. It began in 1546, and up at the top of page 37, I say the year 1517 was pivotal because this is the year that Luther nails the 95 grievances to the church door. So now you are in the throes of the Protestant Reformation, and you have a council that convenes to respond to the Reformation. The Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, was convened in order to be part of what historians call the Counter-Reformation. So the Reformation begins in 1517, and then you have this council that convenes beginning in 1546 as part of countering the Reformation, responding to the Reformation. The Council of Trent met for 17 years, from 1546 to 1563. Now, it didn't meet continuously for 17 years. It didn't even meet all that often during those 17 years. But it didn't finish its work until 1563. But having finished its work, it wrote a number of pronouncements. And some of those pronouncements of particular interest 
I have listed for you on the following pages. Page 37, the Council of Trent says, If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Now, that word anathema, you need to understand what that means. (laughs) Anathema does not mean we feel sorry for you, we will be praying for you. The word anathema means let him be damned. This is, this is the strongest term possible to condemn a teaching. And notice the, con- the teaching that is being condemned. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified and that nothing else is required in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be condemned. I happen to believe that. Which means I'm condemned. Now, you may have a question. Look, that was in the 16th century. Times have changed. You know, we're, we're all kinder and gentler to each other. Surely, that, those anathemas do not still apply. And you, you would be incorrect if, if you were to say that. They most definitely do still apply. The Council of Trent is still referenced in all current Roman Catholic documents. And within Roman Catholicism, one of the key teachings about the church is that the church does not change. And so once the church has pronounced a doctrine, an official doctrine of the church sanctioned by the Pope, that doctrine cannot be changed. You may be thinking to yourself, you know, I grew up Catholic, or I know I have some Catholic friends, and I know some stuff has changed. I mean, I know even today when I go to a restaurant on Friday, they always have clam chowder. And I know the reason that they always have like fishy stuff on, on Fridays because there were no meat Fridays. Anybody remember that? You couldn't eat meat on Friday. And now you can't eat meat on Friday. But still the restaurants, if you go to the restaurants, they always have fish stuff for the people who are still the no meat people. Okay? So that changed. But that's not, it was not a doctrine. It was a practice. So you'll find, and it gets confusing, but in, within Roman Catholicism, practices do indeed change. But authoritative teaching sanctioned by the church, according to the church, cannot change. And these, these then teachings of the Council of Trent have not changed. So there's one. Here are some more. If anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also increased before God by good works, but that these works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase... Let him be anathema. Now, do you all understand what's being said there? That if you say that you receive justification before God apart from works, and you say that the justification you receive from God is not increased by future works, if you say that, then you are under this damnation, this anathema. And I say that. So I'll just, say, I'll just speak for me, okay? I say that, I'm thinking some of you guys say that as well. Those of you who are members of our church, if you don't say that, let me know. We'll make you anathema, and then we'll go from there. (laughs) Bottom of page 37, if anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them, or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification... 
Though all the sacraments are not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. So these are now, this is narrowing it down. Not only are good works in general necessary for justification, but in particular the good work of participating in the sacraments. And if anyone says that's not necessary to justification, then they are to be anathema. Now when it says not all of the sacraments are necessary for every individual, there are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church. One of those is, for example, ordination. One of those is marriage. And the Roman Catholic Church doesn't say everybody has to be married or everybody has to be a priest. So that's what it means when it says not all of them are necessary. But those that are necessary are the Mass, and that the Mass is central, the central sacrament to the Roman Catholic uh, works system. Top of page 38. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Now, some of you have grown up in Sunday school and you've been taught, I would tell you rightly, that grace is undeserved what? Favor from God. But if you believe that grace is only the favor of God and not something that is increased by the presence of the Holy Spirit and then the charitable works that we do and so on, let him be anathema. So you can see that's just a sampling of what's at stake in this issue of who's the authority, who gets to say, and then what is the authority said and how do they compare to each other? That's how I've set this up for you. Because the key issue, if you wanted to boil it down, in fact, I was just asked yesterday by someone at our brunch, hey, I'm not sure about this, some of these differences. And I said, hey, we got a class on that. But uh, I said, let me boil it down to you this way. The, the, the number one issue is the issue of authority. And everything else flows from that. And once you reject the, the foundational authority of Scripture, then everything else diverges from there. And we're going to see that, that together. Now, Luther, as I've already said, Luther did not start these issues. He wasn't the first one to come up with these issues or see these problems. These problems have been seen for centuries before. And I just want to give you an example with a couple forerunners of the Reformation on page 38. John Wycliffe, he's called the morning star of the Reformation. You see the years of his life listed there. And Earl Cairns, in his book, Christianity Through the Centuries, which is footnoted there, uh, Cairns' book is available in our resource center. It's a very, very helpful book, I think. But it says, he says, Wycliffe attacked the authority of the Pope in 1379 by insisting in writing that Christ and not the Pope was the head of the church. He asserted that the Bible instead of the church was the sole authority for the believer and that the church should model itself after the pattern of the New Testament. To support these beliefs, Wycliffe made the Bible available to the people in their own language. Let me just stop there. There's an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators to this day because of the translation work that Wycliffe did in order to put the Bible into the uh, language of, of the people. Wycliffe went still further by 1382 by opposing the dogma of 
transubstantiation. Yikes. What is that? Trans, so that, that, this, that long word is a compound of two. And the first word that's part of that is trans. And when you see trans, you mean, it means change. So to transport means to change locations. Uh, to transfer, so it means to change. Trans means change. And then substantiation, substance. Transubstantiation means this, the substance changes. Now the substance of what? The substance of the bread and the wine in the Eucharist. And according to Roman Catholicism, the substance of the bread and the wine change. Change into what? Change into the literal body and blood of Jesus. As we're going to see in in the weeks to follow, it means that then when the Mass is performed, that you have a change that has occurred in the substance of the the bread and, and the wine. That change occurs when the host, if any of you, if we have any Roman Catholic friends here, then you're familiar with this. And I've seen this uh, in a Roman Catholic Mass myself. So you might be familiar with the priest raising the host, the, the bread. And he consecrates the host. The priest prays a prayer of consecration. And when he does that, the bread is changed to the body of Christ. And he does the same thing with the, the cup, the chalice. Only the priest can do this. Only the priest is authorized to pray the prayer of consecration so that the bread and the cup are literally changed into the body and blood of of Christ. That's what transubstantiation is. Now, When that happens, then, we are going to see that the Mass becomes a reenactment of the crucifixion of Jesus. And Christ is really and truly, according to Roman Catholicism, crucified anew each time Mass is, is celebrated. Now you can see, if you're, if you're awake, if you're thinking, you can see how this whole, the work system and all of that now starts to fit together. Because in order for me to be justified before God, it involves my, my good works, but of course all of my works, even most of my works are not good, so what do I What do I do? And I've got to have those works covered and the way those, those sins covered and the way those sins are covered is through the blood of the sacrifice of the Mass. So you go to Mass from week to week in order to have the sins covered since the prior time. If you commit a mortal sin since the last time you went to Mass, you say a mortal sin, I didn't know we had adjectives for sin. I thought sin was sin. Well, that's where you get off reading the Bible. Uh, in Roman Catholicism, you have two categories of sins, venial and mortal. <clears throat> and I'm not trying to be flippant, but there are big sin, small sins and big sins, venial and mortal. A mortal sin would be something like, mortal, it is, it is, a, it is death for your soul, mortality. A mortal sin, it would be something like murder. So if you commit a mortal sin, and that mortal sin is not covered by 
the blood of the mass before you die, then you have no hope of heaven because you died with a mortal sin to your account. It's not covered. Now, if you're still awake and you're thinking, what if someone commits suicide? Suicide is self-murder. And by definition, you have no opportunity for mass. So in Roman Catholicism, anyone who commits suicide has no hope of purgatory or heaven. But this all flows from this issue of authority and where does it come from, and then that's how it diverges, as we will see. That's what transubstantiation is. So back to that paragraph. Whereas the Roman church believed that the substance or essence of the elements changed while the outward form remained the same, Wycliffe argued that the substance of the elements was indestructible and that Christ was spiritually present in the sacrament and was apprehended by faith. Despite having five papal bulls, that's the word, uh, for a pronouncement from the Pope, Five papal bulls issued against him, having been tried for heresy by the Catholic Church three times and having two popes summon him to Rome. Wycliffe died peacefully at his home on December 31, 1384. Nevertheless, in 1415, and this is one of my favorite events in church history, the church ordered his body to be exhumed, his bones burned, and his ashes scattered in a nearby river. We'll teach him. I mean, but anyway, I mean, you're really ticked at somebody, aren't you? Okay, we didn't get him while he's alive. We're going to get him after he died. But anyway, the reason for such anger was that Wycliffe's influence was spreading. The 1415 Council of Constance that ordered the exhumation of Wycliffe's body also issued a death sentence against a Wycliffe disciple, John Huss. In addition, in 1521, Luther was accused of renewing the errors of Wycliffe and Huss by making the Scriptures his final authority. No wonder the chronicler Fuller said of Wycliffe's influence, they burnt his bones to ashes and cast them into the swift, that is, a neighboring brook running hard by. Thus the brook running hath conveyed his ashes to Avon and Avon to Severn and Severn into the narrow seas and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. So Wycliffe, morning star of the Reformation, and then a disciple of his, Huss, who was uh, executed, as we'll see. The Reform-centered writings of John Wycliffe found their way into Bohemia, now Czechoslovakia, where John Huss, a preacher in the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, read and agreed with them. He stressed the role of the Bible as authority in the church and preached against the sale of indulgences which were being used to finance the Pope's expedition against the king of Naples. The Pope excommunicated Huss and placed Prague under the interdict. All right, let us stop again. Prague gets placed under this thing called the interdict. What is that? It is the imposition of the Pope upon the priests in a particular location, in this case Prague, to say that Mass cannot be given in that location. Now think about this. If you believe that your eternal destiny depends upon you participating in the Mass, and the Pope says that the only authorized people to perform the Mass cannot do it, 
What kind of pressure does that put upon the authorities in that particular area? And the interdict was a tool that was often used by the Pope in order to impose his will upon a magistrate in a particular area. Because the interdict could not last very long because the king is going to get strung up or whoever's agitating against, against the, the Pope because the populace believes we must have access to the Mass and the only way we can get access to the Mass is through the church and through its authorized representatives, namely the, the priests. They're the only ones who can do transubstantiation. So if the Pope imposes the interdict, it's a huge deal indeed. So again, bottom of page 38. The Pope excommunicates Hus, places the city of Prague under the interdict, roughly meaning that the entire city was excommunicated and could not receive the sacraments. Hus refused to recant, was condemned by the Council of Constance, and on July 6, 1415, was burned at the stake. So, where did Wycliffe, where did Hus, where did Luther, where do we get the idea that the Scriptures are to be the supreme authority. Is this something that just came into vogue in the 14th century, you know, the 1300s of Wycliffe? Is it the case that for the first, say, thousand years of Christianity that people believed that the Scriptures were not the, the final authority? And I've got a bunch of pages here now in the, in the next few, and I want to read several quotations from you from what are called the early church fathers. And I've compiled these for you, a bunch of them, because I want you to see unequivocally that not only in the 14th century did Wycliffe and Huss and others believe this, but in the first centuries of the church, it was believed that the Scriptures are the authority. It's important for you to know that because our Roman Catholic friends uh, have as their number one argument for the Roman Catholic system is, is history, the antiquity of the Roman Catholic Church, and that the church will often say, as we will see in future pages, will often say, this is the ever, this is a quote, the ever teaching of the church. The church has always taught this. That's what they will say. So it's important for you to know that history refutes that. And that what are called the early church fathers did not believe that the authority of the church or the authority of the bishop of Rome, later called the pope, superseded the authority of Scripture. Page 39 of that. The early church fathers on the supreme authority of Scripture, Justin Martyr, in the second century, he revealed to us all that we have perceived by his grace out of the Scriptures. Irenaeus, 2nd century. Since then in their system, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others they have perfect knowledge, they gather their views from other sources than the Scriptures. We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the Scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. Clement of Alexandria. Cannot we be silent where Scripture is silent and leave all to him who loved the Gentiles and died for them on the cross? Hippolytus. There is, brethren, one God, the knowledge of whom we gain 
from the Holy Scriptures and from no other source. Whatever things then the Holy Scriptures declare, at these let us look. And whatsoever things they teach, these let us learn. But even as He has chosen to teach them by the Holy Scriptures, so let us discern them. Tertullian. I I revere the fullness of His Scripture. If it is nowhere written, then let it fear the woe which impends on all who add or take away from the written word. Up to this point, he says, there is room for controversy until the matter is brought to the test of the Scriptures and fails to make good its case. Take away indeed from the heretics the wisdom which they share with the heathen and let them support their inquiries from, notice this phrase, the Scriptures alone. They will then be unable to keep their ground. For that which commends men's common sense is its very simplicity and its participation in the same feelings and its community of opinions, and it is deemed to be all the more trustworthy inasmuch as its definitive statements are naked and open and known to all. Athanasius. For the tokens of truth are more exact as drawn from Scripture than from other sources. Vainly then do they run about with the pretext that they have demanded counsels for the faith's sake. For the divine scripture is sufficient above all things. And after listing the books of the canon, Athanasius says this, These are fountains of salvation, that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him take aught from these. For concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees and said, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures. And he reproved the Jews, saying, Search the Scriptures, for these are they that testify of me. And then just skip down toward the bottom of page 40, Ambrose and Basel. Ambrose says, For how can we adopt these things which we do not find in the Holy Scriptures? I do not wish that credence be given to us. Let the Scripture be quoted. Basel. We ought carefully to examine whether the doctrine offered to us is conformable to Scripture, and if not, to reject it. Nothing must be added to the inspired words of God. All that is outside Scripture is not of faith, but is sin. And then Jerome, top of page 41. That which does not have authority from the Scriptures, we may as readily despise, that is, condemn, as well as approve. And then Augustine or Augustine. All things that are read from the Holy Scriptures in order to our instruction in salvation, it behooves us to hear with earnest heed. And yet even in regard of them, are things which ye ought especially to observe and to commit to your memory, because that which shall make us strong against insidious errors, God has been pleased to put in the Scriptures, against which no man dares to speak, who in any sort wishes to seem a Christian. When he had given himself to be handled by them, that did not suffice him. But he would also confirm by means of the Scriptures the heart of them that believe. Now hear this. For he looked forward to us who should be afterwards, seeing that in him we have nothing that we can handle, but have that which we may read. That's the early church fathers, and I think I'm correct in summarizing. They're saying, if it ain't in the Bible, then it doesn't have authority. Well, okay. The Bible is the authority then, but what if the Bible cannot be understood? And this is a claim that is made in Roman Catholicism, that 
The average person cannot understand the Scriptures. Therefore, the, the church is the, is the divine interpreter of Scripture. But the early fathers say that Scriptures are clear and that the average person who can read can comprehend the teaching of its main, its, its, uh, main doctrine. So on the clarity of Scriptures, it says number one there. That should be number two. Number one was the authority of Scriptures. So if you want to change that, sorry. But again, Justin Martyr, pay attention, therefore, to what I shall record out of the Holy Scriptures, which do not need to be expounded, but only listened to. Tertullian, now the Scripture is not in danger of requiring aid of anyone's argument, lest it should seem to be self-contradictory. It has a method of its own, both when it sets forth one only God and also when it shows that there are two, Father and Son, and is consistent with itself. Athanasius, for did they know they would not dishonor and ridicule the Lord of glory, nor interpreting things immaterial after a material manner pervert good words? It were sufficient indeed on hearing only words which are Lord's at once to believe, since the faith of simplicity is better than an elaborate process of persuasion. And on it, and, and on it goes. So, those are the issues that are at stake, and the issues are authority. Who has or what has the authority to tell you how you have a relationship with God and how you can enjoy heaven with Him? And once you solve that issue of authority, now you can look to that authority to see what it says about that. We're going to make the case in the coming weeks that that authority is indeed Scripture alone. But we're also going to see what happens when you reject sola scriptura, when you reject the Scriptures alone. We're going to see the kinds of doctrines about all sorts of things that have been developed over centuries that are not found in the Scriptures but are given equal weight with what is found in the Scriptures. So I hope you'll be able to be with us. We'll pick it up at the middle of page 42 next week. Let's pray as we depart. Our Father, we thank you that we could spend this time looking at these most important issues. There are no issues, none. No political issues, no financial issues, no relational issues on a human level. Nothing that is more important than what we've considered today and will over the next few weeks. Help us to do so carefully. Help us to come to a proper, a right, a truthful conclusion about where truth resides and from, from where and, and from what its source is. Lord, we believe that you have given us the Holy Scriptures. And so we want to be pointed to them and what they teach about us, about you, and about a relationship between us and you. We pray that you will help us to be clear then in our teaching in the weeks to come. And may you, as a result of this, cause eyes to be moved from other and lesser, by definition lesser things, to the, to the truth of Holy Scripture. And as a result, may you draw some to yourself in the salvation that the gospel in the Scripture teaches. Go with us this week, we ask. Grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.